Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute and the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I'll be moderating today's program. Widely credited with launching the environmental movement when it was published 50 years ago, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, as you all know, had a very profound impact on our society. Carson was not the first to write about the dangers of pesticides or to sound environmental alarms about the same, but her writing style and her ability to reach out to a broad audience allowed her to capture and retain the attention of the public. If you talk to libertarians and ask them, you know, how did you become a libertarian, they might say Ayn Rand or Murray Rothbard or Milton Friedman. If you ask environmentalists how they became an environmentalist, you will hear Rachel Carson, maybe Al Gore, something of that nature, but Rachel Carson is right near the top. Now, the landmark 50th anniversary of the publication of Silent Spring provides a conspicuous opportunity to reassess her legacy and ongoing influence. Accordingly, I'm very proud to have had something to do with the publication of Cato's new book titled Silent Spring at 50, and to put on the podium here this afternoon two of the book's co-authors to discuss Rachel Carson and her legacy. Now, our first speaker this afternoon is Richard Tran, a co-founder and chairman of Africa Fighting Malaria, AFM, a malaria policy and advocacy group with offices in South Africa and Washington, D.C. Richard and AFM work closely with malaria control programs, scientists and researchers in sub-Saharan African countries, assisting in advocating efforts and defending the use of insecticides in public health programs. Richard has been widely published in the print media in the United States, Europe, and Africa, and has written many scholarly reports for think tanks and policy institutes in the U.S., EU, and South Africa. In 2010, he co-authored with Professor Donald Roberts, The Excellent Powder, DDT's Political and Scientific History. That kind of gives you a hint about what you might hear over the next few minutes. Most importantly for our purposes this morning, he co-authored a chapter in Silent Spring at 50, our new book, titled, Did Rachel Carson Understand the Importance of DDT in Global Public Health Programs? And I'm probably not giving much away to say Richard doesn't think she did. Richard received his bachelor's degree in economics from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and a master's in environmental resource economics from the University College London. Richard recently began working as a program officer for the Searle Freedom Trust. Now, alas, Richard has a train to catch very shortly, so he will have to depart immediately at the end of his remarks. Uh, we are certainly the poorer for all of that, but we do have him for a few minutes, so now let me, without any further ado, turn the microphone over to Richard. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jerry, and, uh, and I, my apologies for speaking and, and, and running. Um, the book, as you'll get, I'm sure hear from Andy, has some, some very interesting uh, chapters and some thoughtful chapters by some, some very um, some good writers. And I'm, as, as Jerry mentioned, just going to focus on the topic that I wrote, chapter, I, I co-authored with Professor Donald Roberts. Um, I'm not going to discuss everything in the chapter. Obviously, I'd encourage you to go out and buy the book. Um, but I'm going to give a sort of overview of, of some of the points that we make and, uh, and discuss some contemporary issues that we think are uh, legacies of Rachel Carson's work and of Silent Spring. Um, before I begin, I would like to thank Andy and, and Roger Miners and Pierre Roches, as well as the Cato Institute for, uh, for producing the book. I think they've done a, a really excellent uh, job, and it was, it was a great pleasure to work with them uh, on it. One of the most controversial uh, and seemingly endless debates in environmentalism is the role of DDT and the role of public health insecticides in general in disease control programs. Uh, every time uh, anybody makes the point about the value of DDT in disease control, 
letters to the editor start streaming in and the, uh, the, the blogosphere comes irate with irate posts, um, often with some outrageous and often ad hominem attacks against people like me and, and my colleagues. Um, while the actors involved have changed and have certainly increased in number, um, the arguments, however, have not changed that much. And many of the same arguments that are found in Silent Spring we see repeated again and again now. Um, it's, it's first of all important to, to make the point that Rachel Carson in Silent Spring did not call for DDT to be banned. It's something that did happen 10 years after her, um, her book was published. But the way in which she denigrated the use of DDT and made some pretty anodyne comments about the use of DDT in public health was a smart tactic. It allowed her to, um, to, to dress up her anti-DDT campaign as real concern over public health programs. And I'll explain what I mean in a bit. Um, it's also important to know that, uh, that, that Rachel Carson really stands apart from people like William Vogt and Paul Ehrlich and the population control movement in that she didn't directly call for DDT to be banned because it was so good in saving lives. Um, they did. I mean, they really set a new standard in, in callousness in directly advocating against the use of any life-saving technologies in poor countries because it would, in their view, lead to population growth, which for them was a real problem. Um, Carson was dismissive about the importance of DDT in, in, in public health programs, but she really, we can't find the same callous disregard for human life that you get from someone like, like Paul Ehrlich. Um, but while Carson was working on, on Silent Spring, uh, and long before that, DDT was being used, and in, using quite large, large quantities in the United States in disease control programs. Um, and it's inconceivable that she didn't know about uh, the use of, of DDT in this way. And, and to be clear, what we're talking about is in public health use is the spraying of small amounts of quantities of this insecticide inside houses, not the aerial spraying in large quantities. Put, put away that, that, that great image from North by Northwest where Cary Grant is running through the field trying to be killed by the, the crop sprayer. That's not what we're talking about now. I'm not quite sure what they thought they were going to achieve. They are going to drown him in DDT or something. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. In our, in our chapter, we provide data on the use of public health in... Um, in uh, in, in, in the United States and, and, and around the world. Let's give you a few examples. Between July 1947 and December 1949, over 4.65 uh, million houses in the southern states of the United States were sprayed with DDT inside to control, um, to, to control malaria and protect people against Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, over a five-year period, that program reduced the burden of malaria in the United States by over 90%. But malaria wasn't the only disease that it was being used against. Um, it was, in 1946 alone, 450,000 houses were sprayed to control murine typhus spread by, spread by fleas. Uh, DDT was also used to control house flies that spread um, the dysent dysentery. And in 1969, up until 1969, the CDC used DDT to control urban yellow fever and, and dengue. Now, all these diseases were controlled or either eliminated um, or controlled by, by use of DDT. And, of course, it wasn't just in the United States. The, the, the most famous uses of it uh, around the world, it, DDT use did eradicate malaria from the U.S., from Europe, from island states like Taiwan. But it was in countries like Latin America, India, 
um, large parts of Africa, uh, Sri Lanka, that uh, DDT was most used most dramatically, uh, almost eliminating uh, malaria in some cases. Um, and it was this use that led to the, uh, the global malaria eradication campaign in 1955, led by the World Health Organization and paid in very large part by the United States. Now, ultimately, uh, eradication of malaria was not achieved. Uh, it's still a disease that is being battled. Uh, and so because of that, many people uh, characterized this program as a, as a terrible failure. Well, in that it didn't eradicate the disease, it did fail, but consider that during that period, a billion lives were saved by through, primarily through the use of, of DDT. And by any other measure, this is an astonishing success. Um, now, none of this kind of escaped Rachel Carson's attention. Um, but for the most part, she just ignores these, these uh, beneficial uses of, of the insecticide. Um, the first use of DDT in public health was, in fact, anywhere really, was in Naples in 1944 when the Allied forces liberated the city. There was a, a massive and terrible uh, typhus epidemic, this typhus spread, human typhus spread by human lice. And the Allied forces used DDT of a, of a series of weeks to uh, totally um, halt the epidemic. When Carson discusses this, she doesn't talk about the benefits of this program. She only really mentions it to describe how the lice developed resistance to, uh, to, the, to, to the insecticide. And one of the main problems, one of the main gripes that we have with Carson is that she totally misunderstands the whole resistance issue. Um, first, she, 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 she complains that mosquitoes were being driven out of houses that were sprayed by DDT and uses this as evidence that this was caused by resistance to, uh, to the insecticide. But in fact, this is precisely how DDT functions. And the scientific literature is filled with, uh, with papers and evidence starting in 1944, precisely describing that this is how DDT works. When you spray a house with DDT, it acts as a spatial repellent. It stops mosquitoes from entering the house. And it will also kill mosquitoes if they, if they remain in, the, in a treated house and pick up enough of the insecticide. And it will irritate them as well so that they exit prematurely, hopefully before they've um, uh, fed on humans. But, but its main value and its, main, its primary function is as a spatial repellent. Um, so... Now, the issue of insecticide resistance is a problem, and it was a problem back then. But what Carson does is she, she dresses up the great value of DDT's spatial repellency and, and treats it as a great liability, as a problem for the disease. And this is just as a, as a problem for disease control. And this is, I mean, I'm being kind to say that this is just mischievous. Um, she also gets her ideas wrong on resistance in another way. She claims that once you start using... Um, public health insecticides, man-made insecticides in this way, you're going to inevitably lead to resistance. And that to control, to, to deal with this, you have to use ever more and more toxic chemicals. Uh, and this is just not true. What you, what you need is to have uh, chemicals with different active ingredients. You want uh, chemicals that were, have different modes of action. But what she was claiming was that even, if you even start down this road, you're going to constantly having to ratchet up uh, the toxicity, using more and more toxic chemicals and eventually completely poison the world. 
she was wrong uh, again there. But it was a very useful way of, of spreading great fear um, in, uh, around the world. Now, uh, as, as you'll see when you, when you read the book, um, the, much of, the, of, of Silent Spring is a, is a, a pretty lurid uh, description of the harm to human health and to wildlife from, from use of DDT. Carson even blames the death of a woman from leukemia um, on the use of DDT. This woman had used um, DDT to, in her basement to control spiders and a few weeks late, later died of leukemia. And Carson saw nothing wrong in blaming DDT on this death, even though this is, this is pretty far-fetched. Um, well, despite thousands and thousands of studies over many decades looking at DDT, we still have no study that complies with the most basic epidemiologic criteria to prove a cause and effect relationship between DDT and harm to human health. Um, and when the World Health Organization does uh, risk assessments on DDT, they find uh, in favor of its use for disease control. They still find, uh, and just last year published another uh, very comprehensive study uh, finding that DDT is not harmful to human health when used in, in disease control. Um, but as Professor Roberts and I, my co-author in this chapter, as we e explain, uh, this is just one of many areas that Carson uh, was wrong in, in <coughs> Silent Spring. And as I said, although she didn't directly call for it, uh, eventually the EPA did ban DDT in 1974. At the time, many people were arguing to DDT, and war uh, sorry, arguing uh, before the EPA and warning the EPA that what would happen would have some pretty dire consequences for disease control programs. Um, uh, and in fact, as the World Health Organization records show, that uh, after this happened, the price of DDT went up, availability went down, and it was much more difficult for disease control programs around the world to, um, to, 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 to get hold of it to, and, and, and to use it. Um, this continued with, within the World Health Organization with malaria scientists uh, warning Within the, within the decision-making, within the, kind of the political uh, decision-makers within the World Health Organization, that any restrictions on the use, on access to DDT would harm uh, access, to malaria, access to DDT. But regardless, the political appointees uh, to the World Health Assembly, the governing body of the World Health Organization, and political appointees from countries like the United States, Canada, Germany, France, um, the Scandinavian countries, in other words, countries that do not, and at that time did not have a problem with malaria, continued their activism uh, and, their, and their pressure on countries to reduce their reliance on DDT. And so by 1997, what we, what we got out of the World Health Assembly, that, as I said, the governing body of the World Health Organization, was a resolution calling on all countries to reduce their reliance on the use not only of DDT, but of all public health insecticides. And this resolution came out at a time when there was, growing ev there was evidence of growing uh, um, burden of not only malaria, but also diseases like yellow fever and dengue, insect-borne diseases, vector-borne diseases. Um, this resolution was passed and approved at a time when there was no evidence that you could control these insect-borne diseases without the use of insecticides. And yet, this resolution 
was passed and stands today. It's kind of outrageous, but there it is. This is the, uh, this is the kind of evidence of the, the, the power of politics uh, in determining these kind of public health <coughs> policies. Um, it's thanks, we argue, that to, to science bringing to Carson, the campaign that she started, that there hasn't been a new public health insecticide developed for more than 30 years. Um, the barriers to developing new insecticides continue to rise. With things like this 1997 resolution, the, the market is small and uncertain, and uh, so there's just almost no investment. Now, barriers to developing medicines and vaccines have also gone up, but on the other side, there is a great deal of advocacy and pressure from um, groups around the world to stimulate investment, to, to try and remove those barriers, to provide incentives from governments, and to have both public and private investment. Not so with insecticides, precisely because they are insecticides, because of this antipathy to the very idea of using insecticides. Consider that in 2009, research and R&D spending for all of malaria, so including for treatment and research on vaccines, was around $600 million. Only 4% of that total spending on uh, R&D went towards vector control, so that controlling the mosquitoes, uh, and only a fraction of that 4% would have gone towards finding an insecticide. And it's no wonder that there's just uh, no, there are no new tools. Um, so what, what we argue that, that Carson's, what Carson's, what Science Spring and the, the campaign that she started does was, was give great cover to, to organizations and individuals to continue these campaigns regardless of the costs. And I'm going to just give a couple of, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of examples uh, that we face right now that we think are directly, uh, that arrive, we arrive at these directly from the campaign that she started. Um, I'll just give two examples. Um, I don't know if any of you were watching, I'm sure many of you were watching the London Olympics. Uh, you may have seen a South African runner uh, called Casta Semenya. Uh, she's a, an athlete of, uh, competing from South Africa, and she made the news a few years ago because of allegations that she was intersex, that she had both male and female genitalia. And this caused a great, I mean, the headlines around the world, but in South Africa, this was very much in the news. Um, and people on all sides of the political spectrum were, were using this. Uh, Winnie Mandela started claiming that this was some racist plot, kind of predictable from, from that quarter. But anyway, a scientist, um, and I use that uh, descriptor kind of with caution, a scientist and environmental toxicologist from the University of Northwest, a man who has published a great deal on DDT in the scientific literature, a man who was appointed to the UN Environment Program's uh, committee on DDT, came out on television at the time and made the uh, allegation that Casa Semenya's condition was caused by DDT. Now, the fact that Semenya was born and grew up uh, about uh, several hundred miles away from the malarial areas in South Africa where DDT is still used was ignored. The fact that in those malaria areas, we have no evidence there that people, that, that DDT would cause intersex, that the fact that over the, since the 1940s, there's no evidence that it causes this condition was, is neither here nor there. The fact that Casa Semenya was conceived and born and grew up in an area where they haven't used any DDT for 40 years was, was um, ignored. 
he still went ahead and he felt justified in making these claims. Um, and I, I repeat again, this is a, a, a scientist who is considered to be very senior in the environmental public health, uh, environmental public health um, community. What happened, and I, and I know this because I've spoken quite a great deal to the malaria control programs in South Africa, is this caused enormous fear in South Africa so that it became increasingly difficult for the, for the pro malaria disease, um, the malaria program managers to motivate the spraymen that go out and do their work to, to continue to work, and also, understandably, the homeowners to open their doors to let people in and to, to do their work. Um, and yet, uh, there's been not, uh, despite the fact that these claims are made without a scintilla of evidence, uh, has just, you know, he just ignores and he has, has refused to take back his remarks or even uh, provide any kind of evidence. He has none, but he, he will not back down. Um, this is what you get uh, when Silent Spring is held up as the, uh, the standard of scientific evidence in this regard. Um, my next example involves the UN Environment Program and the Pan American Health Organization. Both these organizations wanted to show that you can control malaria without using DDT, in fact, without using any insecticides. And so with funding from the Global Environment Facility, uh, which is an uh, agency housed by the World Bank, they got funding, I think around $13 million, to run, an experiment, run experiments in Mexico and seven Central American countries. And what they did was they set up demonstration areas in the malarial areas of those countries and implemented various, what they considered environmentally friendly interventions, such as clearing out ditches that might have water, uh, cleaning ditches, um, and, and various other things. They, they stopped short of kind of sitting in a circle and singing Kumbaya, but it was that kind of thing. One of them involved advising household homeowners to keep their dirty clothes outside their house in case uh, it might attract mosquitoes. No evidence that that actually matters, but anyway... Those, that's what they were, those were their interventions. And like any good scientific experiment, they, uh, they had control areas where they would do nothing and at the end of five years wanted to see how their environmental techniques worked. Well, uh, in 2008, they came out with a very aggressive press release and a media campaign and claimed that their uh, program reduced the burden of malaria by over 60%, which is pretty... Pretty impressive. So this caught attention around the world, and it started there, you know, the UN Environment Program and PAHO continued to spread their advice that you don't need to use insecticides to control, uh, in, uh, control malaria based on their work. But unfortunately, it was complete nonsense. Malaria did decline in Mexico and in these Central American countries over this period. But it declined everywhere, if not the entire countries. It, it declined in the control areas as well as in the demonstration areas. When the UNEP um, issued their report, they conveniently ignored the, the, the controls. You don't even see any evidence that there were controls in their experiments. And the reason that malaria, in fact, in one country, that malaria declined by more in the controls than in the demonstration areas. You could argue that what they were doing was actually hampering malaria control. Anyway... What, they, uh, what, what happened in those countries was that the, the governments there embarked on a very aggressive program of pharmacosuppression. In other words, providing people, both symptomatic and asymptomatic people, 
with malaria drugs, with chloroquine and primaquine, and started treating them to clear the parasites out of their bodies. Hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of doses of malaria drugs were given to everybody. And uh, this is a method of malaria control. I don't want to get into the merits of it. But this is what was going on in those countries. And yet, the UN comes out and claims that their project was responsible for these declines. They just lied. Now, the Global Environment Facility, with taxpayers' money, uh, has spent, has invested uh, about $260 million in various um, Stockholm Convention. Stockholm Convention is the convention that governs the use of DDT, and they've they've spent $260 million in various Stockholm Convention projects. Um, A fraction of that has gone into their work to find alternatives to DDT. This project, this Rani Gazoo, if I can use a a Bertie Worcester term, is included in that spending. They classify this as finding alternatives to DDT. Again, this is what you get when when Silent Spring is held up uh, as a great scientific text. Now, there are many other examples uh, uh, of this kind of nonsense that goes on. But the, the fact remains that there are still about eight or nine countries around the world that rely on DDT, that still use it in disease control. Uh, and they do this about 140 years after DDT was first synthesized. They're doing this about 70 years after DDT was first used in Naples. And while everything else in malaria control and public health has improved, we have new vaccines, new techniques, new medicines. We still have countries relying on this old insecticide. And it's a great irony of Rachel Carson's campaign that the, the insecticide that she loved to hate is still being used precisely because of the dampening, camp- the dampening effect that it had on uh, developing new, um, new insecticides, new alternatives. We really shouldn't be using it. Well, it works incredibly well. But we really should have alternatives. So this is a, uh, it's an interesting irony. Anyway, I'm going to end there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard, and for playing chicken with your one o'clock train out of uh, out of Amtrak. So we appreciate you being here and sharing some uh, some few moments with us. Our next speaker is Andrew Morris, who teaches at the University of Alabama School of Law and is the author or co-author of more than 60 book chapters, scholarly articles, and books. He is affiliated with a number of think tanks and academic organizations, including the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, the Regulatory Studies Center at George Washington University, the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and the New York University Center for Labor and Employment Law. His scholarship focuses on regulatory issues involving environmental, energy, and offshore financial centers, Over the past 10 years, he has regularly taught and lectured in China, Greece, Guatemala, Hong Kong, and Nepal. Morris earned his bachelor's degree from Princeton, a JD, as well as a master's degree in public affairs from the University of Texas at Austin, and a PhD in economics from MIT. After law school, Andrew clerked for U.S. District Judge Barefoot Sanders. Sounds like a baseball player, but... uh... It's a good name for a judge or a a player, I think. In the North District of Texas and worked for two years at the Texas Rural Legal Aid Center in Hereford and Plainview, Texas. While Andrew is clearly a man of many talents, the talent that brings him to the podium here this afternoon is related to the fact that he was one of the three co-authors of Silent Spring at 50 
and was the co-author of a chapter there entitled Agricultural Revolutions and Agency Wars, how the 1950s laid the groundwork for Silent Spring. So please join me in welcoming Andrew Morse. Thank you, uh, Jerry, and thank you all for being here. Uh, Silent Spring was and is a critically important book. It's an extraordinary book in, in many ways. It's beautifully written. It's a searing polemic uh, with this image of a spring in which no birds sing that remains in our national consciousness as a warning about the perils of uh, altering nature. It's important because it changed how Americans think about pesticides and about the environment. And as a result, as um, Richard said, uh, changed how the rest of the world uses them uh, because American environmentalists have spent the last 50 years uh, since the book was published attempting with a great deal of success in badgering the rest of the world into doing what American environmentalists think is the right thing, uh, which is basically to let Latin Americans, Africans, and Asians suffer and die from malaria, as Richard uh, described here and as, as he and Don Roberts described uh, very well in their, their chapter in the book. It's an important book because it shaped the American environmental movement into what has become today, I think, uh, could be fairly described as a religious crusade uh, to impose a particular set of values. Uh, what uh, University of Maryland professor Robert Nelson, who's uh, an author of a chapter in the book, uh, calls Calvinism without God, uh, which is surely one of the bleakest possible religions one can imagine, since Calvinism with God is not a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> It's a really important book, but a lot of people don't read it uh, much anymore, and that's a shame because people ought to read it. It's a key intellectual document in an important political movement of our time, and uh, that movement has spurred massive federal legislation, massive federal spending, and significant changes in how we all live our lives. So a few years ago, Roger Miners, uh, Pierre de Rochers, and I decided that we should uh, try to mark the 50th anniversary of the book by organizing a critical assessment of it. And uh, we thought no one else was likely to do that, and I think we're right. The, all the other books that have come out marking the 50th anniversary have been uh, a sort of religious hagiography of St. Rachel and, and the book. Uh, so uh, we asked people to read it seriously from a variety of different perspectives and take a look at how the book and its claims and its prescriptions have stood up over time and how they fit in with what was known at the time that it was written. And the Searle Freedom Trust uh, graciously funded a conference that brought all the authors together to talk uh, over the drafts, and you've got the result uh, before you in the book. Uh, Richard told you about the malaria issue, which is a very, very important part of evaluating both uh, Carson's work and her legacy, uh, but there's much more uh, an entire book's worth. So I want to take uh, a few minutes to highlight several of the uh, things that we, different authors brought out in the book uh, and then uh, we'll have uh, time for questions. So first, um, let me uh, point out that Silent Spring wasn't anything new uh, when it appeared in 1962. It was simply the latest in a long series of books uh, that warned of the dangers of meddling with nature, uh, particularly by using chemicals in, in agriculture and elsewhere. So just a few of the other titles that preceded it. There was uh, Arthur Kellett and Frederick Schlink's 100 Million Guinea Pigs, from 1933, which went through 37 printings, uh, plus a follow-up uh, 200 million guinea pigs uh, later on. And one of the reviews, actually, of Carson's book said the title should have been 190 million guinea pigs, which was the population of the United States at the time it came out. 
G.V. Jackson and R.L. White uh, published The Rape of the Earth in 1939. Uh, William Voigt uh, published The Road to Survival in 1948, which was translated into 11 uh, languages and reached 20 million readers. Uh, Fairfield Osborne's uh, Our Plundered Planet, also in 1948. And Murray Bookchin's Our Synthetic Environment that came out the same time as Carson's uh, book, but did not get nearly the attention as, of Silent Spring because Bookchin was not nearly the writer that Carson was. So there wasn't really anything substantively new uh, in Silent Spring. Um, and in fact, Carson herself had proposed an article making most of the same points that she later made in the book to Reader's Digest in 1945 after she had edited uh, some Fish and Wildlife Service research on pesticides uh, and Reader's Digest declined it. Uh, Pierre uh, and his wife Hiroko Shizumi and Robert Nelson, uh, both, uh, all three have chapters in the book that really trace the intellectual origins of uh, Carson's work and document in quite a bit of detail how her ideas fit into these larger intellectual trends, uh, trends that Richard alluded to in terms of uh, the, the, the sort of anti-human uh, arguments that there are too many people uh, and uh, we should stop uh, stop efforts to increase population by reducing disease. Uh, what was new in Silent Spring was that it was Rachel Carson, who was a well-known person, uh, saying it, and the way she said it. Uh, she said it particularly well. So today, we remember Rachel Carson because of Silent Spring. She's the author of Silent Spring. But in 1963, uh, she was the author of The Sea Around Us, Under the Sea Wind, and The Edge of the Sea, three bestsellers uh, of popular science about the marine environment. Uh, and those books had introduced millions of Americans to the wonders of the, the, the marine environment. And Carson had done a phenomenal job of translating very complex scientific work into something that ordinary people could understand. And the, the first substantive chapter after the introduction in the book is by Wallace Kaufman, uh, a man who founded three environmental groups uh, in uh, North Carolina and who talks about his reading of uh, Carson's marine books as helping form his sense of the world and of the environment uh, as a child growing up. Uh, his family had very few books. One of the few they had was a Reader's Digest edition of The Sea Around Us. Uh, these books spent months on the New York Times bestseller list. They were republished by uh, Reader's Digest in condensed form. They were featured by the Book of the Month Club at a time that, well, you know, the audience looks like it's old enough to remember the Book of the Month Club, but uh, young people today would have no idea what the Book of the Month Club was. Uh, you know, the Kindle of the Month Club, I guess, would be the uh, current thing. But it was, these were really major things, and they created in Rachel Carson. They turned her from a federal bureaucrat who, who wrote uh, press releases and edited uh, publications for the Fish and Wildlife Service into a national figure, a national figure with an audience who were anxious to hear what she had to say in her next uh, book. And so when she decided to write Silent Spring, uh, and she approached uh, the New Yorker about this, and Wallace Shawn, the legendary uh, New Yorker editor, urged her to uh, abandon the objective approach that she had taken in these uh, C books and instead uh, write a book of advocacy, which is what she, she wanted to write uh, because of her concern over the use of chemicals. And Sean wrote to her and he said, uh, told her to be an advocate. He said, after all, there are some things one doesn't have to be objective and unbiased about. One doesn't condone murder. So this was the attitude with which she uh, approached that. Now, let me just give you one example of how that advocacy attitude affected the book and has affected our subsequent discourse about environmental issues. And that's Carson's treatment of cancer and cancer rates. 
Now, this is a really important part of Silent Spring. It's one of the things that scared the crap out of everybody who read it. I read Silent Spring when I was about 12 in 1972, and it terrified me to learn that one in four Americans was going to die of cancer. Uh, because I thought, uh, I looked around, and there were four people in my family, and the other three looked pretty healthy. So I thought, uh, this, this, the odds were not good for me. Um, and th this got a, enormous attention uh, in the early 60s. And that Carson herself died of lung cancer, or, or breast cancer, soon after Silent Spring only adds to the impact uh, of the, the cancer story. So she paints a very narrow and unrealistic picture of the situation with respect to cancer by using selective, uh, selectively using data and uh, failing to talk about things that were in the public discourse at the time. So, it, for example, uh, chapter three, which is called The Elixirs of Death, uh, begins with the following rather ominous statement. Uh, for the first time in the history of the world, every human being is now subjected to contact with dangerous chemicals from the moment of conception until death. In the less than two decades of their use, the synthetic pesticides have been so thoroughly distributed throughout the animate and inanimate world that they occur virtually everywhere. So this is, this is terrifying stuff. Uh, later on, she goes on in chapter 14 to discuss what the effects of this uh, spreading of these uh, elixirs of death throughout the world could be. And she says, by the end of the 19th century, a half dozen sources of industrial carcinogens were known. The 20th century was to create countless new cancer-causing chemicals and to bring the general population into intimate contact with them. But the environmental situation has vastly changed. No longer are exposures to dangerous chemicals occupational alone. They have entered the environment of everyone, even of children as yet unborn. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that we are now aware of an alarming increase in malignant disease. Now, uh, that's a, this is very, very strong uh, language, and she, in fact, titled uh, the uh, chapter 14, One in Every Four, uh, because she was predicting that one in every four Americans would uh, die of cancer. Uh, this is um, a, a staggering claim, and uh, indeed, there had been an increase in cancer rates uh, and ca deaths from cancer in the United States over the 20th century, but Carson neglected two really important things, uh, actually three really important things in uh, making this prediction. The first was that in 1958, uh, the population was two and a half times the 1900 level. So all else equal, the number of deaths, but not the death rate, uh, would have increased correspondingly. And so when she talks about absolute numbers of deaths, she doesn't correct uh, for uh, the increase in population. And the second uh, thing she ignored was that over the 20th century, uh, all-cause deaths and death rates uh, because of other, other diseases other than cancer had declined dramatically. Life expectancy increased from 47 years in 1900 to 69 years in 1958. And the risk of death from cancer uh, increases sharply with age. So because people were not being killed by other diseases earlier in their lives, they survived longer and contracted cancer. So cancer, cancer death rates have to be adjusted for the aging of the population uh, before one can make a conclusion about whether or not uh, a new element in the environment is responsible uh, for an increase in cancer death rates. And if you make those adjustments, you find that there's a very modest increase, not the dramatic increase uh, that she uh, pu publicized in the book. Uh, and third, uh, deaths from many other diseases, uh, tuberculosis, gastrointestinal diseases, influenza, uh, malaria, uh, diphtheria, typhoid, paratyphoid, scarlet fever, and so forth, uh, had uh, declined dramatically, and that uh, certainly uh, increased the number of people surviving to die later of cancer. Now, 
remember that Carson was not a naive journalist uh, who uh, stumbled upon a number and publicized it. She was a professional science writer uh, with a master's degree from Johns Hopkins at a time that getting a master's degree uh, was a, a serious terminal degree. Not, not nearly as many people got PhDs in the 1950s as um, do today. And so this was a, a serious, well-educated uh, person. And it could not have been an accidental omission that she did not uh, discuss these factors. These are things that uh, were in public discourse and were known, and she should have uh, mentioned them. Uh, she also did not mention tobacco, which is particularly interesting. Uh, she was a smoker, so she certainly knew about uh, tobacco. Uh, and in the 1950s, when she was writing this book, tobacco was very high on the public health agenda. So uh, during the 1950s, we find increasing discussion of a connection between lung cancer and tobacco. And uh, Carson does not mention this at all. Now, one reason for that is that her cancer expert, the person she went to uh, for, uh, to learn about cancer and to structure her uh, comments about it, was um, Dr. William Huber, a, uh, who was someone who had a very strong position that there was no link between tobacco and cancer. And so she uh, took from Huber uh, all the sort of expert analysis of uh, cancer rates. And since Huber didn't think tobacco was important, she didn't think tobacco was important. Now, it's one thing to not think it's important. There was a debate uh, in the 60s. Now, I think the debate was uh, pretty significantly over by the early 1960s. Uh, one can make an argument that not until the Surgeon General's report uh, in uh, 1964 is it conclusively established, but by the late uh, 1950s and early 1960s when she was writing Silent Spring, it was certainly a major part of public discourse that tobacco and cancer might somehow be related. And it's curious that she did not mention it at all. And this fits in with the advocate's role that she took. Uh, she was not uh, giving an objective treatment of things but making a case and so ignoring any factors that might uh, detract from that case. Uh, Carson also raised the frightening specter of rapidly increasing cancer among children. Uh, and she said, uh, a quarter century ago, cancer in children was a medical rarity. Today, more American school children die of cancer than from any other disease. Uh, well, that could be for several reasons, right? It could be that more American children are getting cancer, or it could be that more American children are not dying of other things. And indeed, uh, the major reason that cancer deaths in young age groups appeared larger in 1960 than in 1900 was the dramatic decline in all-cause death, all death rates uh, for the, that group. So for 5 to 14-year-olds, uh, deaths fell from 380 per 100,000 in 1900 to 60 per 100,000 in 1960. And uh, many of the diseases that uh, previously killed children uh, had largely been eliminated. Uh, so again, she does not mention this. She does not correct for it. Uh, she doesn't uh, pay attention to it because she's building a case. She also paid almost no attention to comparative risk. Uh, so uh, Silent Spring uh, does talk about how before the use of organic uh, pesticides like DDT, uh, the most common pesticides were things like arsenic. And uh, arsenic is extremely toxic, uh, extremely acutely toxic. Uh, in fact, uh, early pesticide laws in the United States in the early part of the 20th century uh, concentrate on forcing farmers to use pesticides uh, so that their neighbors would not be afflicted with the insects from the, the farmers not using it. And the initial impulse of the government 
as you might be expected, was to prevent other countries from banning U.S. produce because they were covered with arsenic. Uh, and so there was a, a concern in Britain uh, that arsenic-covered apples were being shipped from the United States, decimating not only the British apple industry but also the British population. And uh, so the, the, the government's role was largely uh, promoting uh, pesticide use early in the, the 20th century, and that meant uh, arsenic. Now, DDT... Uh, may have uh, many problems uh, as a in mass use uh, in terms of its environmental persistence, but so does arsenic. And the question is, which one is worse? And indeed, uh, arsenic compounds are implicated in cancer. They're also associated with uh, conditions of the liver, skin, gastrointestinal and nervous systems, uh, and uh, lots of other bad things. So the, the, this question of what we are using uh, in agriculture uh, never came up. It was really uh, a discussion only of uh, the dangers of one of the options. Now, Carson did have a solution uh, to this, and she uh, has a, a chapter uh, in the book that uh, suggests another path, and that was biological controls. And we were particularly interested in this, and so we uh, recruited a biologist um, to take a look at that, both in light of what was known uh, at the time and what is known today. Uh, Nathan Gregory's chapter, I think, is one of the, the most interesting in the book, uh, certainly for me, who's not a biologist, and uh, he takes a very careful look at her proposals and finds that her arguments are really uh, based in an, what was even at the time a, a mis somewhat misguided view of how ecosystems work and the, uh, sort of the central metaphor of a balance of nature uh, fundamentally is uh, today seen as misunderstanding the uh, nature of ecosystems and that her prescription of introducing new organisms into ecosystems to control pests is uh, at best problematic. And as Dr. Gregory writes in the chapter, uh, it is stunning to think that Carson or the practitioners of biological control did not see a problem or contradiction in the classical approach of sending one exotic species to control another. As a one-time invasive species manager and student of biological control, I find one of the most shocking passages in Silent Spring to be Carson's lauding of Newfoundland's efforts to import masked shrews to the islands to control sawflies. Generalist predators, particularly vertebrates, are typically disastrous biocontrol bio agents. And Dr. Gregory goes on to talk about some of the uh, serious problems that the Newfoundland um, program had, as well as some of the others. So uh, she had a proposal for change, but it was a proposal that, that inverted the precautionary approach she took to unnatural things, synthetic things, uh, and instead advocated a widespread adoption of introduction of exotic uh, predators uh, into the ecosystems where they do not belong. Now, Carson did get some things right, uh, and uh, I'll just very briefly touch on this. She was very critical, uh, and rightly so, of USDA's massive uh, funding of uh, indiscriminate spraying of uh, all sorts of places in the United States. So uh, particularly on Long Island, uh, USDA uh, funded uh, a gypsy moth eradication effort that led to the indiscriminate uh, spraying of large swaths of private property, including uh, a number of uh, wildlife enthusiasts and organic farmers who found their livelihood ruined uh, by the fact that government planes were drenching their uh, organic farms with uh, non-organic things. And the, uh, there was actually a lawsuit brought, two lawsuits were brought on Long Island uh, in an attempt to stop this uh, complete violation of the property rights of the landowners who had, who had explicitly requested not to have their property sprayed. And the federal courts rejected 
those lawsuits on the grounds that although it was undoubtedly a trespass to spray toxic chemicals onto someone's property, uh, the government had determined the greater good. And surely uh, the government's uh, determination of the greater good could not be questioned. And so property rights had to bow before uh, this determination of the greater good. Uh, there, were, there were many, many uh, 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 protests against uh, USDA spraying. Uh, the initial uh, uh, welcoming of the USDA programs in the South, for example, uh, turned to a rejection. Uh, so USDA switched from having a shared funding formula in which states participated in funding uh, fire ant control in the Southeast, uh, where I now live, uh, to paying for it all by itself because the states refused to pay their share because the people in the area said, we don't want uh, this uh, control program anymore. We don't see results, and we think that it's harming our livestock. Uh, so there were uh, significant uh, problems with Silent Spring. There were some uh, good points as well, and, uh, but it is a, a foundational document in the modern environmental movement. Uh, it, unfortunately, I think, is still being treated as a holy text rather than as something to be critically assessed. Uh, and so the, the failure to appreciate its flaws are still leading us down uh, somewhat disastrous paths. Uh, Roger, uh, Pierre, and I are very grateful uh, to Cato for publishing the book uh, and uh, to the Searle Freedom Trust for assisting in the preparation of the book uh, because we think it is important to take the book seriously rather than reverently. And so I will uh, close by pointing out uh, one of the blurbs on the book, uh, what made me very, very happy, is from a former colleague of mine at the University of Illinois, Heidi Hurd, who is by no means a libertarian uh, or a skeptic about uh, things. And she said, you know, this book, or she emailed me after she read it, and she said, this book uh, was really hard for me to read. And I thought, oh, my God, we wrote, you know, there's typos, or it, 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 you know, the, the prose is terrible. She said, no, no, it, it forced me to reassess someone that I had really admired, and you did her the courtesy of taking her seriously. And I think that's what all the authors in the book did. We all took this as a serious uh, thing to be assessed, and uh, I think you'll find that the book is a, a fair uh, treatment and a balanced treatment. Uh, there's, there's plenty of acknowledgement of the strengths, uh, but also, I think, highlighting some of the most important mistakes that she made, mistakes that have set us down a path that we are still on. And with that, I'll uh, turn it over to Jerry to uh, manage the questions. Well, thank you, Andrew. Um, we now have some time for questions and hopefully from, for answers as well, but that'll be up to Andrew. I assume he will provide the latter. Anyway, uh, if you have a question, raise your hand, but please wait to be called on by me. Uh, wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and on, in our audience watching online can hear your question and announce your name and affiliation so we know who we're talking to. So with that in mind, let me go first here. Yeah, um, Steve Allen from uh, Capital Research Center in Greenwatch. Um, I've done a lot of research on uh, uh, scientific organizations and how they started getting involved in politics, and particularly back going back to the 1930s. And one of the things that I've seen is there's is a pattern of um, the kind of lying, and I'll call it lying, that uh, uh, Rachel Carson was involved in, and, and at least in terms of cherry-picking the data and, and, and 
perverting the case uh, in order to, to be an advocate. Um, and you, you tend to see that, I think, in, in, in most uh, or at least most of the examples where scientists get involved in becoming policymakers. Uh, they, they, they fall into that trap. Uh, it, it, would you comment on that? Is that something that, uh, that you, you, you see going back many years? Has that developed historically or is that just something that's always been present? Well, I don't want to blame scientists uh, uh, specifically. I think, I think that there is a tendency in uh, public policy advocacy to uh, state your strongest case. And if that just means ignoring the other side uh, so you don't get credence on it. In fact, when we, um, uh, we started approaching people to uh, participate in the book, some people said, well, this, this, this is a project that just shouldn't be done. Um, so, it, you know, the, as a law professor, uh, you know, we, we teach people in law school that you can't be a good advocate unless you understand the other side's case, right? And so we're always sort of making students switch sides. And so I think a flaw in this advocacy and a flaw in the, I agree, I've seen this sort of cherry-picking uh, sins of omission type argument uh, is that uh, public policy discourse uh, seems to ignore that. And I think Silent Spring would have been a better book. It might not have been a more effective book. Uh, had she said, well, you know, it, it could be that tobacco use has something to do with this. It could be that, uh, you know, longer lifespans, that, you know, if she'd uh, gotten someone to handle the age adjustment, this is things that were happening in literature. Um, but it is a, a, a hallmark, I think, of public policy discourse that uh, you stage manage your case to be the strongest possible, ignoring the other sides. And, and I think that leads to weaknesses, right? It would, we would have had a much better conversation about the pros and cons of DDT use in public health had, this, uh, had the conversation not started with a, uh, something that omitted almost all discussion of the public health benefits. My name's Terrence Byrne. I'm retired from the Department of State. I have a double-barreled question. First, what are some of the negatives of DDT use? And second, how should DDT be used? Um, well, the negatives, uh, what there, there are a couple of negatives. One of the primary ones is it's quite persistent, right? So if you, if you spray it indiscriminately into a field, it's going to linger around for a long time, and it does work its way up the food chain uh, as uh, it DDT and the, the things it eventually degrades into are consumed by uh, wildlife. And, you know, so uh, you spray an insect and a bird eats the insect and it works its way up the food chain. So that's definitely a negative. Uh, how should it be used? Um, it should not be sprayed indiscriminately into fields. It's a very, very powerful, broad-spectrum insecticide, and its best use is certainly not in uh, pest control in fields. Uh, it's a terrific uh, thing to use in uh, spraying the interior of homes in malarial areas. As uh, Richard said, this uh, idea that uh, it serves as an irritant to uh, keep the mosquitoes out of the house, and, and so it, mosquitoes have evolved at night to feed on humans uh, when we're asleep. And uh, that's a good time to bite us because you don't get slapped, right? So uh, if you keep the mosquitoes away, that's an excellent uh, step. So the easiest use of it is for malarial control and a, a poor countries, particularly because the alternatives are so much more expensive, in uh, in-home spraying, the, where persistence is a plus, right? It lasts for a long time on the walls. The easiest thing not to do with it is to spray it over a cotton field uh, to, to kill a, a pest. 
And in fact, uh, DDT was already on the decline by the time Silent Spring came out uh, for two reasons. One, newer products had developed that were better, were more targeted, and also because uh, the, there was no patent protection on DDT. And so uh, the manufacturers of it, it was a commodity and they weren't making a lot of money on it. They were trying to push people into using uh, newer products. So DDT was uh, a public domain uh, chemical. One reason I think that the campaign against DDT was so successful in the 60s was nobody really stood up to defend it because nobody was making any money off it. Uh, but so, so the, the, the short answer to your question is we should be spraying it in people's homes and malaria, malarial areas. We should not be spraying it out of airplanes over um, uh, large stretches of uh, the countryside in an attempt to sort of kill everything uh, in the field. Sir. Hi, Jim Lowen, independent scholar, I, uh, author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, among other things. Um, I think you and the previous speaker have made a good point, or a couple of them, but I think you're your points are small ones compared to the broader point that she got right, which I'm particularly thinking should be emphasized here at the Cato Institute. And what I mean by that is I lived in Mississippi. I got sprayed by Malathion, no less, uh, by the USDA to uh, cut down fire ants. Now, I lived in, a, in Jackson, Mississippi, in an urban area. Fire ants are no significant problem there. If they have a fire ant, which we did, you just kicked them aside or, or ignored them. It, it was just a ridiculous USDA boondoggle, uh, as you pointed out. Well, okay, so she got that right about spray, spraying malaria, I mean spraying DDT and maybe et cetera, from airplanes. Um, I think that there's still way inadequate attention being given to the envir environmental causes of cancer, which, by the way, does cause, cause more than one, fourth, one in four deaths. I mean, it's up above that by now, for reasons you partly pointed out, yes. Um, the environmental costs go unaddressed by the American Cancer Society and so on. Uh, I think, again, because there's interests on the other side of these costs. And I wonder if you have any comments. Didn't maybe Rachel get it more right than wrong? Um, I don't think she got it more right than wrong. Her uh, idea of environmental, um, uh, her, her notions of uh, cancer causation was that we had introduced uh, these sort of toxic chemicals into the environment and they were causing uh, uh, problems. I think that today, uh, you know, so, uh, Bruce Ames has written quite a bit about sort of the natural carcinogens. Carcinogens are part of the environment and that we see them um, they're, 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 they serve the things that turn out to be carcinogens often turn out to be defense mechanisms uh, for uh, for plants. So there's a uh, some discussion of that in uh, one of the chapters. The um, what she didn't she didn't get it right, I think, because she didn't um, she didn't really assess the case of whether or not there were environmental causes or not. She had determined that there were environmental causes, and she presented only information that supported that position. Uh, so if uh, you, she, and as you, as you say, and as, as we say uh, in some detail, she was very, she was right about these mass spraying programs, right? These, these mass spraying programs were, USDA had this great new toy, and they said uh, after World War II, DDT was very, very popular. Soldiers came home from Italy, for example, and said, you know, it stopped typhus. It's terrific. People were throwing it at weddings instead of rice. Uh, you know, rice is bad for birds if you throw on cooked rice. And so, so oh, throw DDT, and that way the, the, the bride and groom won't have typhus 
uh, if they have any lice, it'll, it'll clear it up uh, and the birds won't be uh, hurt. So it was very, very popular and there was a concerted uh, effort uh, by USDA to sort of tie itself into that popularity and to subsidize the use in, in these ridiculous ways. So, so the fire ant control program is a, a great example of it. Uh, the gypsy moth program is a great example of it. There were tiny infestations of gypsy moths on Long Island, and the, the solution was to blanket Long Island with uh, DDT. Um, so she was right that those, that those were bad things to do. I don't think they were necessarily bad things to do uh, because they were introducing toxic substances in the environment in such a way that it would lead to uh, mass increases in cancer. They were bad things to do because they were violating people's property rights and interfering with their businesses and exposing them to stuff that they didn't want to be exposed to. That was, that's that's a, a matter of choice. There were important public health uses. Uh, she did not acknowledge those. There were uh, important reasons why cancer rates were uh, rising. She acknowledged those. So I'm sort of reluctant to say she got it right. Uh, it, you know, if she did, she got it right in the same sense that a stopped clock is right uh, twice a day. She did, not, she did not give a thorough analysis of the numbers. And certainly uh, the people um, uh, who assessed her uh, science at the time, it was a, a very contentious thing, so it was, it was hard to see. But failing to do things like age-adjust uh, cancer rates, I think that just kind of takes it out of the possibility that she's right. I'm uh, Don Elliott, an environmental law professor at Yale Law School. Um, thank you very much for writing this book. Uh, like some of your other books, it will be very helpful in showing students the other, the other side of some of these, uh, some of these issues. Um, I wanted to ask a question that focused in specifically on the, the legal issue of banning DDT, not the criticisms of the book, but... Uh, to what extent do you think that the the legal decisions with regard to DDT uh, resulted in at least in significant part from the the illusion by the Congress at the time that there were absolutely safe uh, pesticides and we really didn't get involved in weighing costs and benefits and and thinking about substitution risks under the uh, under the law at that at that time. The reason I ask that is I was a law clerk for one of the judges who on the D.C. Circuit who had been on the, uh, the, the panel that upheld the EPA decision to ban DDT. And he was very well aware of uh, some of the things that you've talked about and very troubled by the effect on uh, less developed countries and so on. He was very close friends with Phil Handler, who was at that time the head of the National Academy of Sciences. And Phil Handler was all over him about all of these terrible issues. And, and he simply felt that he wasn't permitted to consider those things under the, under the pesticide law at the time. And I think he was probably right. I'd be interested in whether or not part of this resulted from the illusion that there were absolutely safe substances and we really couldn't uh, consider the kind of substitution risk issues that you talked about today. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there was any other decision possible under the pesticide law at the time. I, the, court was not, the court was not sitting to review the substance of the decision. It, uh, its, its powers were uh, limited and it appropriately uh, deferred to the agency. Um, and I think you're right. Pesticides, have, uh, pesticides are either uh, completely safe or they're complete disasters. There's no middle ground. There's no assessment of it. There's no uh, consideration in uh, pesticide 
uh, law going back to the 1920s of any, either uh, anything other than an option of it's okay or it's not okay. So uh, pesticide law comes out of an environment in which the problem was people selling stuff that didn't work. It was you know, sort of acutely poisonous and would kill people. And so the first pesticide regulations are really aimed at uh, you know, making sure this stuff isn't going to kill the person who's spraying it. Uh, and then making sure it doesn't kill the person who eats the stuff that was sprayed with it. Uh, and by the time we introduce environmental considerations in, it's not in a, a weighing of the costs and benefits. It's a, this is unsafe or this is safe. And, and the debate is, who's got the burden of proof? Um, and that's a very unfortunate place to be because we make decisions in a vacuum, like banning DDT, where we don't consider, well, what, what are you going to use instead? What are the consequences of that? And I, I think pesticide policy, as I've written elsewhere in this country, is just completely incoherent. Uh, so we, we have this sort of very strict thing at the federal level, but then we let states do exemptions. Uh, and so uh, what really goes on is you just get a whole bunch of exemptions for your product, uh, and you can skip, the, you know, skip, skip adding new uses at the federal level. And state agencies are, are grossly um, ill-equipped to assess uh, the scientific evidence because usually it's some guy who's got a big pile of stuff on his desk and he's got to move it through uh, quickly. So um, the law is totally screwed up uh, in this area. And one reason it's totally screwed up is that uh, USDA has, uh, was an advocate for a particular type of farming from the 1920s on. And USDA helped shape and control pesticide policy and, and literally controlled it up to EPA's creation and the transfer to, to EPA. And uh, that he very heavy-handed uh, view of the USDA took of, we are here to promote uh, mass agriculture that's going to lead to huge exports that will uh, deal with the trade deficit and so forth. That, that attitude is, I think, uh, behind many of the problems we have. USDA bad. That's my... In the front? So much attitude from Safe Foundation. Um, I, I think at the end of your presentation, you mentioned something, uh, and which is the advocacy part and reverence. And uh, I look at, um, you know, in 1971-72, when I was studying environmental uh, management, and it was uh, one of the cited reading for graduate study in some of the courses like environmental planning theory. Um, however, I read only the first chapter and the last chapter, and I discarded it just like I would have discarded bi the Bible, you know, after reading a little, because uh, as you pointed out, that it creates, created a movement and a reverence. So given that, uh, it's got to have lots of problems. You could write a book like this on Bible, though <laughs> there are lots of <laughs> ridiculous things in it. But at the same time, people still read it, People still get inspired, and people still. So given that situation, um, I think just to analyze it only from the scientific standpoint, I think is, uh, is, is inappropriate. And uh, it served its purpose to create a huge environmental movement and caution us against all this proliferating you know, chemi chemicals that have come out, I mean, including, I, I, I even referred to uh, Agent Orange that we sprayed in Vietnam and so on. Uh, and the last point that I want to make is uh, trichloroethylene. Uh, when I was working on some hazardous waste management project, I met one of the senior executives in our company, and he said, what are you working on? I said, we are trying to remove trichloroethylene from groundwater. 
He said, trichloroethylene. When I was a student in the 50s, I worked for a company, and they were using trichloroethylene everywhere. And when I was going, at the end of the day, I would wash my face with trichloroethylene, and that is a major carcinogen. So she made us conscious of all this that was coming <laughs> and was going to inundate us. Uh, it's certainly true that attitudes have changed dramatically toward things. I I worked on a case when I was a lawyer, uh, a a, a summer associate at a a large law firm where uh, we were, there was a degreasing machine that operated, and I I think it was using trichloroethylene. And the uh, engineer's depositions, they said, oh, it made you feel all tingly in the morning. Uh, We liked working with that stuff. Um, So attitudes changed because we learned more. Uh, and uh, to the extent that uh, Carson uh, made people aware of this, that, that's a good thing. Uh, I think we were learning it anyway um, because uh, people were uh, paying attention. So the, the sort of initial flush of excitement uh, creating a bunch of chemi- chemicals, uh, that's, that, you know, they, they got overused. Particularly they got overused when you could use them with somebody else's money the way USDA did. Um, the, the book actually does have some people who look at it more in other contexts. Uh, their arguments are a little harder to summarize in 20 minutes, so I didn't uh, bring them up. But uh, particularly Wallace Kaufman's uh, chapter and Bob Nelson's chapter and uh, Pierre and Hiroko's uh, chapter uh, put it in context of uh, the, as, as, as a religious document explicitly in Bob's case. Uh, Bob, is, uh, Bob sees religions in lots of places, so economists are religious in his view as well. Uh, so he's not just picking on environmentalists. But um, it is important to think about those issues, and, and, and there are some uh, things in the book. But I think it also is important to, to not let her off the hook. Uh, she purported to be doing more than writing a book uh, that was going to be a popular uh, uh, you know, call to arms. She thought she was making an important public policy point, and that public policy point took off. And I think that if... Uh, you know, if, if we were talking about an environmental movement that was primarily shaped by Aldo Leopold uh, rather than Rachel Carson, we would be living in a very different world in which uh, trade-offs would be more important and there would be a, a more of an emphasis on getting science right uh, rather than using science as a weapon, which is what I think uh, she did, which goes to the, the question at the beginning of uh, how, how you engage in public discourse uh, with scientific information when you're trying to persuade people who aren't scientists and I think that uh, one of the flaws in the book, well, from my perspective, a, a, a successful thing from her perspective in terms of uh, building a public alarm to it was uh, she was very good at using science as a weapon. And that's probably not how we ought to be making public policy decisions. Sir? Thank you. Richard Ranger with the American Petroleum Institute. Is, does one of the another of the essays in the book discuss uh, the place of Rachel Carson and Silent Spring in the emergence of the precautionary principle narrative? Um, yes, I, I'd be interested because that that you know we've sort of passed fifty years later to where it, the issue is about acceptance of risk, and I'm just curious what your reflections would be on that. We we have two chapters that uh, look at that one uh, explicitly. Uh, on the precautionary principle and one about her uh, approach to risk. And I think that um, I sort of sum them up briefly by saying that uh, there's a very clear line between Silent Spring and the public acceptance of the arguments in Silent Spring and the precautionary principle. So that you could, we would would perhaps be having a different discussion about the precautionary principle were it not for the attitudes that Silent Spring helped establish. 
And the second is that she wasn't very good at comparative risk. And so she didn't do a very good job of dealing with comparative risk, uh, perhaps deliberately. And so uh, we've ended up in a difficult situation where ideas like the precautionary principle, which uh, I think, um, uh, I'm not sure if Cato published Indra Gokhlani's precautionary principle book, uh, but it pretty much uh, shows the incoherence of that as a public policy tool. Uh, so uh, Carson's uh, explicit position in the book was that you shouldn't use anything until it's really been thoroughly tested, in which case uh, we're not going to use very many things. And uh, no assessment of what the cost of delay might be, uh, for example, with respect to the public health costs or uh, other, other costs, uh, the cost of continuing to use the grandfathered arsenic-based uh, pesticides uh, while we waited. In the front. Swami Ayer of the Cato Institute, two questions. For developing countries, because of this virtual ban on the use of DDT, uh, there is now the proposal, Jeff Sachs has been a great campaigner, that we have bed nets immersed in insecticide, which are then sent around. I personally find it difficult to understand how insecticide in a bed net is somehow more environmental friendly than merely spraying the inside of a room. So is this just an extremely expensive way to avoid the uh, flack that environmentalists will give, or is there any adv any advantage in having bed nets as opposed from spraying internally? The second question I have is: Yellow fever was an even greater scourge than malaria, and you got rid of it here entirely. How, wh what lesson does that have for developing countries which still have these insect-borne diseases? Um, well, on the bed nets, bed nets are uh, much more expensive and they're less effective. So with a bed net, you have to dip it in uh, pyrethrins, I think is the, 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 what you use. And you have to regularly dip it to keep it uh, effective. And there can't be any holes in it. And you can't uh, you know, uh, leave a gap when you close the net. And, and they are quite expensive. Uh, so bed nets have been something heavily promoted. Uh, they're less effective. Is there a difference? The difference is what chemical you're using. So they're not spraying the bed net with DDT. Um, it's not a rational thing to say that using a bed net is better than spraying DDT on the walls of the house. Spraying DDT on the walls of the house is better than a bed net. There's just no question about that. And, and Richard and Don Roberts have uh, done a lot of work that show that, uh, and, and collected a lot of work by a lot of other people to show that bed nets just aren't nearly as effective and they're much more expensive. So you end up doing less of it and they don't work as well. So more people end up with malaria, they end up dead, they end up uh, less productive, they end up having horrible lives afflicted with a terrible disease. And uh, it, it, when, you, when you read Richard and Don's stuff, uh, it's just very hard to understand how people can rationally advocate uh, denying this tool to uh, people who are extremely poor. You know, poor, poor people in Latin America, Africa, and Asia are suffering uh, basically so that people at cocktail parties in New York can feel good about themselves. That's the only explanation I can uh, come up with for that. Um, in terms of uh, disease eradication, uh, as, as Richard pointed out, in the 1950s, we were very close in lots of places to eradicating malaria, and we did pretty much eradicate malaria. The United States used to be a malarial country, uh, and uh, there was malaria in a lot of places, and we got rid of it. Now, we got rid of it through a variety of things, not just the use of DDT. We drained uh, places that mosquitoes uh, breed and things like that. Uh, in the 19, early 1960s, lots of the Caribbean was uh, ridden with malarial mosquitoes and other mosquitoes that uh, massive eradication campaigns uh, were launched to uh, address. Uh, these are all improvements in human welfare. 
And again, denying people access to those improvements, I think, is a misguided effort that fails to put humanity at the center of our value system, which is that improving people's lives ought to be what we're about, not foregoing efforts to improve the life of millions of people because of a concern that actually is not based on sufficient data. Brian Pick, Opinion Mover Strategies. You criticize current law as being incoherent with the federal bans with state exceptions. What would be a more coherent kind of policy taking into account tradeoffs? And when we do find that certain things are either toxic or carcinogenic, would an alternative be to tax various substances at different rates? Or, I mean, how do you take those tradeoffs into account? Well, you know, as an economist, I love the idea of taxing stuff to give people incentives. But then as an economist, I also remember that the economists don't get to pick the tax rates. And so they're probably going to be set by somebody else and not based on harm. And so maybe that idea is not practical. And then there are, you know, what happens to the money is another question. So here's how pesticide regulation works now. So the current structure is you must get a federal registration to use a pesticide. So you have to section three registration. So you go to EPA and you have to file enormous amounts of scientific evidence and so forth about the efficacy and the safety of the chemical you want to register. So introducing a new pesticide is extremely difficult. It costs millions and millions of dollars to complete the work necessary to register a pesticide. Now, all existing pesticides at the time, once you have a registration, right, we didn't go back through the existing pesticides and weed out the bad ones. So when we introduced environmental considerations and introduced greater data requirements other than people don't drop dead when you spray it around them, which was sort of the initial one, we didn't go back and take out or review the existing chemicals. So there's a sort of bias in the system towards something that's already got a registration. So it deters innovation. So the first serious problem is we have a system that prevents innovation or deters innovation by causing any new chemical that is brought on the market to meet tests that existing chemicals don't have to meet. So it also becomes much easier to take an existing chemical for an existing pest and transition that to another pest. So you don't have to repeat all the sort of basic science studies. So again, we encourage broad spectrum chemicals because you can easily move them from one to another pest and get new markets for it. Now, if you relied solely on chemicals made available through Section 3 of FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act, there would be lots of uses that wouldn't have any pesticides available for them. And so states are allowed to exempt either on an emergency basis or for a special local need. So cotton is, you know, perhaps there's a pest on cotton in Mississippi that's not present elsewhere, and we need a tool for that. So no one's going to register it for the whole country, but the Mississippi Department of Agriculture can allow it there. So that's sort of a pressure release valve. So that sort of keeps armies of angry farmers from showing up in Washington with pitchforks and demanding that EPA approve some 
uh, pesticides. So the whole thing has become a sort of this sort of political negotiation. And you've got this advocacy agency, USDA, uh, promoting the use of um, uh, uh, promoting uh, a particular style of pest control uh, through its extension service and so forth. And then you've got uh, EPA seeing itself as the gatekeeper and, and blocking things. So what would a rational system look like? I think a rational system would focus on information. Uh, so uh, my, I come from a, a family of uh, farmers, not my, uh, my parents, but my, all my mother's relatives are farmers. My wife comes from a family of ranchers. Uh, I have never met people who care more about taking care of their part of the earth than farmers and ranchers. And so I think information provision is a, a key here. If you get information to the people who are using chemicals, they uh, have a tendency to use them responsibly, if only because uh, pesticides are really expensive. And so the sort of overspraying problem that Carson was concerned about uh, causing resistance to develop and so forth isn't a problem in that the incentive for the farmers to use as little as possible uh, to accomplish his or her uh, goal. And so I think that there's a huge uh, uh, need for information, right, and for a check on the information that perhaps the uh, flim-flam man uh, with his uh, bucket of chemicals might be uh, providing the farmer. But we can, we can, uh, we have a mechanism to uh, deliver information uh, to farmers through the extension service and so forth. So focusing on information would have a, a, a tremendous um, thing. Now, the acute safety regulations uh, that uh, were, have been in FIFRA since the 1940s. Uh, those kind of things are, uh, you know, we don't want people injured uh, using the, the chemicals. Those things have been uh, in place and work reasonably well. The labeling uh, works pretty well. Um, the uh, empowering state, uh, leaving it to the states to set uh, qualifications to use more hazardous uh, substances. So uh, you can go buy Roundup at Home Depot. Uh, but you can't buy sort of professional-grade Roundup at Home Depot. And so if you want to use the, 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 the much more toxic stuff, uh, you usually have to pass a test that shows that you have some knowledge of what you're doing. So uh, focusing on those things, I think, give us the opportunity to uh, minimize the side effects, the, the bad side effects that come from uh, agricultural chemical use without impeding and disincentivizing the creation of new uh, means. Now, new pesticides tend to be better for the environment than the old ones. Uh, the old way we found pesticides was you sort of sprayed stuff on bugs and see what, saw what killed them. And it turned out what kills them sometimes kills us too, and, and, and you know, arsenic is a great example. Uh, newer ones, we've come up with much uh, better pesticides now, and we, we ought to be encouraging the creation of new pesticides rather than old. It's the same problem we face with uh, uh, drugs, right? So. Uh, the FDA is largely an impediment to creating new drugs uh, because it's so focused on preventing a, uh, another thalidomide uh, that uh, it can't possibly let us get a, uh, a new uh, cancer drug or something like that uh, without 20 years of testing. So the same uh, problem is occurring with pesticides in that we're deterring creation of new stuff that will environmentally be better, will be safer, and probably more effective at accomplishing the purpose as well. Sir. Uh, in the, this book, uh, which seems which is a excellent, an excellent thing and very timely, uh, it seems that more emphasis is placed on the psychology of how you create mind maps 
uh, in um, uh, in engineering opinion uh, than in truth and ethics. Uh, can you say how uh, have you considered some of that in your book? And you consider uh, that there's some possibility toward uh, how this might apply to other controversies that are going on, like uh, en- like uh, global warming and uh, and so forth. Um, well, I think uh, the, the way the, what we what we do talk about, uh, several of the authors talk about in chapters, and what Roger and I uh, talk about in ours is how uh, Silent Spring. Um, fit a need at the time it came out. There was a, an ongoing struggle, uh, for example, between uh, FDA and USDA over uh, control of food. And so USDA saw food production as its thing, and the FDA saw food safety as its thing. And uh, there were some very masterful hearings that we described uh, put on in the um, 1950s by Representative Delaney and his uh, chief counsel, uh, Kleinfeld, who uh, really orchestrated the hearings to uh, create a sense that there was an enormous need for the FDA to step in and protect uh, the American people. Now, this, this is happening at a time when uh, eating habits are changing dramatically, right? So after World War II, uh, agriculture is increasingly mechanized, increasingly large-scale, increasingly using uh, massive amounts of fertilizer and, and other chemicals. And that uh, one of the, so if you, if you think about that, you're, you're going from a system in which people often bought food from the farmer uh, to a system where you're buying it in the grocery stores. So there's, there's sort of innovations in frozen food, innovations in um, uh, supermarkets and so forth. And, and there's a, a, a dramatic change in how people are getting food and how they're consuming it. And so, there's a little bit, people are a little nervous about this, and there's this, uh, already this, uh, you know, 100 million guinea pigs literature and notion that there's, you know, too many chemicals in our food and uh, the big corporations are, are doing bad things to us uh, and experimenting on us and so forth. And so in that environment, uh, FDA, and I don't, I'm not suggesting FDA had bad intent. People who worked at FDA believed that they were doing good stuff. They were helping protect our food. And they saw that the way to protect food would be to get more resources and have more authority uh, and so forth. And so FDA was fighting with USDA and had, had sort of lost the battles in the 40s, but in the 50s begins to win. And this uh, is, is, is part of creating a climate in which this nervousness, as, as things are new, uh, that people are experiencing. Things are changed. We're not shopping the way our parents shop. We're not cooking the way our parents shop. Now, some of that's neat, right? So TV dinners are neat. Uh, they're space age. They're fun. Uh, but what's inside that foil packet? Uh, you know, it, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't buy it from someone personally. So in that context, right, uh, Carson's arguments really uh, clicked. And uh, I'm not uh, familiar with the, the mind map term uh, you used, but I think in the, the context of the debate at the time, uh, her arguments fit the need of one group of people uh, who had uh, powerful incentives to uh, seek more resources and so forth, uh, and, and we can say to advance their mission and, and do good and, and help the rest of us be healthy, or we can say because they were power-mad bureaucrats, but either way, they were, they were interested in expanding their authority, and this argument was an important one uh, and, you know, John Kennedy read Silent Spring uh, and, and told his science advisory panel to uh, a report back to him on it. There were uh, congressional hearings on it. It really caught 
the imagination of people in Washington and had a profound impact that way. Well, thank you, Andrew. The best boundary we have on an out-of-control runaway policy form is the fact that uh, the company formerly known as Philip Morris does make Marlboro cigarettes, which require my attention. So I'm going to hail that. Um, Please, though, join us on the uh, second level at the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is right up the spiral staircase for lunch. And uh, restrooms are on the second floor. On your way to lunch, look for the yellow wall. But anyway, thank you for coming, and thank you, Andrew, for being here.